This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to Culture Compass on ABC Radio Australia. And so it was something that I saw when my family chanted, the winds blew and the rains started to rain. You know, I saw elements react to the vibrations of the chanting and the power behind all of the hula. And so I think it became so important to me because it was important to our culture. When you pounded drums, I saw how people lit up and our Hawaiian people was proud to be Hawaiian because they could feel the vibrations in their soul. I remember the first time I saw the hula with my own eyes. I was a teenager visiting Hawaii. It gave me goosebumps. The way the dancers' hands moved in such a poetic rhythm, I'd never seen something so enchanting and romantic. Like a lot of Pacific Island cultures, we tell stories through movement and dance. In Samoa, our Siva shares strong connections with the hula. But there's something different about the hula. The curvaceous, fluid movements, the beautiful outfits, the mesmerizing music and chants. I'm Seuli Salamasi Navonraiki, and this is Culture Compass, an exploration of survival, revival and connection throughout the Pacific. This ancient tradition has a patchwork past and rich history that has survived despite attempts to ban and commercialize the dance. So, how are Hawaiians of today getting back to their roots and continuing to pass their dance on to future generations? Maika Kamohali'i is a kumu, a Hawaiian word for teacher. Specifically, he is a hula teacher and academic who's passionate about preserving the traditional style. You know, I think hula has always transported me to a different realm and that I went beyond the veil and that I could reach my grandparents who had passed and that they were right there whenever I started chanting and dancing that Especially if there's an audience, they never noticed the audience that was there. Um, when we danced in the mountains, it was powerful to me because I could, I could use hula became this vehicle to get me to walk into or enter into something very ancient. Um, and, um, so to me, it was just like complete bliss, I guess, <laughs> you know, dancing and, Dancing hula and chanting really just uh, put me into something very old and ancient and a place that um, I felt safe and connected. That's so special. What a beautiful memory. Why did you feel it was important for you to study the history and traditions of hula? So I, it wasn't an option in, in our families, especially in, in Hawaiian families, your grandmothers and your grandfathers, they tell you what to do and you just have to do it. <laughs> I think it's like that in Polynesian families. When your grandparents tell you, um, you're going to be a fisherman, then you just have to become a fisherman. So when they said you're going to be a hula dancer and, uh, uh, and there's no questions. And so 
I think it was for me, it just was something that was passed along the family. It's, it's been in my family for generations. And so I think I saw that it was important to my culture and to my own family, um, because we held it in such high regards that as hula dancers, we were the historians. We were the, so I come from a family that dance like old school hula. So not the Hollywood hula. So the ones that what hula had become. So I, I come from the family that had practiced the older versions of and genres of hula. And so it was something that I saw when um, my family chanted the winds blow, blew and the rains started to rain. You know, I saw elements react to the, the vibrations of the of the chanting and the power behind all of the hula. And so I think it became so important to me because it was important to our culture. I saw what it did when you pounded drums. I saw how people lit up and our Hawaiian people was proud to be Hawaiian because they could feel the vibrations in their soul. I have to tell you at this point that I just love hula and I wish that I could have learned the hula when I was younger. Yeah. And when you say you are chosen by your elders, the elders choose what path for you to take. And then we say that that's your blessing when you actually take that path. Yeah. I didn't do as my elders told me. <laughs> I think, you know, they, they chose it for us and we didn't have a choice. And then when we got older, then we realized, oh, that's why, you know, and so. It makes sense. Yeah. That's wonderful. Let's talk about the origins of hula. Can you tell me about what it means to perform the dance? Yeah, oh, that's a, that's a really big topic. The origins of hula, there's so many, and it differs, um, it differs from island to island. So if you are from Hawaii Island, um, that's where I'm from, and that's where the volcano is, our, our origins of hula there um, have to do with the Pele family. So the volcanic family, the fire clan, it has to do with Hi'iaka'i Kapolio Pele, and how she learned the dance from uh, her teacher, who was Hopoi. And so out in Puna, they did this chant called Keha'ala Puna. And so it talked about the moving and the swaying of the trees and the ocean. And for for this island, that's one of our very old and kind of first dances. And so that's kind of like the, the beginning of hula on this island. If you're from the island of um, Moloka'i, then there's a place on Mauna Loa called Ka'ana. My grandmother them is from Moloka'i. Um, and they have their own origin story there where Laka, the goddess of hula, and um, her sister Kapo and and how hula was passed down and then spread out and taught throughout the island chain. So every island differs, depends on, on where you're from. Maui has their own as well as Kauai. Um, but I think they all link to the same people, the hula gods, and that would be Laka. And then on this island, it, it even extends into the fire clans being hula gods. And our styles uh, differ as well. Yeah. So if you watch people on Hawaii Island dance, you can almost see the volcano in their motions. You can see and feel the energy of a Hawaii island halau because we are the product of our environment. So we dance our geography. So if you're on an island that has eruptions, an island that has earthquakes, our, and um, then our dancing is a little bit stronger and a little bit more robust. And then it sounds like volcanic eruptions. You can see it in the dances and feel it. 
versus if you're on an island like Kauai that is a little bit more older and calm and beautiful beaches and it has had time to develop sand around the island, beautiful long, long beaches of white sand and a little bit more calm. So the dancing is a little bit more melodic. The chanting, it's not so monotone. It has now the voice goes up and down and there's this intonation in, in the voice where it sounds a little bit more musical. And so that's all still the kahiko. It's all different like genres within the ancient hula. And then you have the modern hula, uh, which we know today that has musical instruments like guitar, ukulele, all of those. And we're singing songs. But the time period before that, they were still using implements like the ipuheke, the gourds. They were using banjos and different things. But it sounded almost like chanting, but with instruments. In 1820, the Christian missionaries banned hula. Can you tell me a bit more about that time? Yeah, so 1819 is when the great King Kamehameha had passed away. So he died 1819, and he actually fought the missionaries that came. So the first wave came, and he said, no, leave or die. <laughs> and so they had another wave that came back. And just happened, they arrived, I think, the month after Kamehameha had passed. So 1819, and the missionaries came maybe maybe about two, three months right after. And eventually, so this is 1820 now, eventually they worked their way into the monarchy. So what happens when the great king dies in every um, generation of every king? When the king dies, the, the whole government kind of goes into turmoil. And so in that time period is when the missionaries came and they kind of introduced this new concept of their God and their style and their religion. I feel like the queen at the time, her name was Queen Ka'ahumanu. She was the um, the widow of Kamehameha. And so she saw an opportunity, I think, to become the ruler. Because in the Christian faith, everybody's created equal. They're all created in God's image. Um, and the queen has just as, my, um, just as much authority to rule as the king did. In, in the old Hawaiian culture, no. The, the king was the one who said the last day. So I think she saw an opportunity, took it, and incorporated the Christian faith into our religion. But what they did was they introduced a whole different way of life. And um, in the long run, what it did was it eventually banned our language. We couldn't even speak our own language. I mean, it, we almost lost our language. By the 1980s, we were left with about 50 speakers left. And so eventually hula was banned and anything that celebrated our culture became banned in Hawaii. You know, my great grandmother used to talk about being beaten for being Hawaiian and how she went to school. Yeah, I think I came into school after the beatings and I we used to get detention for speaking our language. We were only allowed to speak English at school. <laughs> Uh, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> but during this ban of the hula in Hawaii, were the Hawaiians carrying on with hula in secret? Uh, do you feel that this period changed the way the dance is performed? Yeah, totally. So I know that they were carrying on in secret because my great-great-grandmother was one of them. And so my grandmother used to say that they hid in the cane fields and taught hula. So certain days, and they, they changed the days so that nobody would catch them. 
Um, but they would go. Um, so on this part of particular side of my family, they were from Lahaina in Maui. So one of our tutus, I think she was my great, great grandmother. She hid in the cane fields and the halal would meet there in the middle of the cane fields with, with very dim lamps. And she would teach them hula. And it was a secret. It almost became the secret society. <laughs> <laughs> and it was because they were dancing old um, dances, which today we we have identified them as what we call hula kapu or the sacred dance. And so they were dancing old, ancient, sacred dances um, that belonged to older religion. And so, um, of course, they had to hide or be persecuted. There was many um, writings in our old language newspapers that said they caught these people performing the sacrilegious hula, or they caught them doing this or doing that, and the government was sent, the officials were sent to go and and see what they were doing, you know, so all kinds of things. So um, our family kept it alive by hiding in lava tubes, um, hiding in lava caves, um, um, as well as cane fields and yeah, out in the, in the bushes, as we say here in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did hula go from being banned to being brought back into Hawaiian society? I think that was, you know, in the fight to bring it back. So you have, okay, so you have King Kalakaua, our last, our last king of Hawaii. And he started to realize that I want to bring back some of these old things. So he started a society and it was comprised of high ranking Hawaiian people. High ranking meaning they had um, royal genealogies that they had to prove and, and they submitted to this, this society he had. And they went to look for all these old practices and they started to kind of uh, reinvigorate them and learn how these practices worked again. And one of them was hula. And so Kalakawa said, let there be hula again. Bring it back. This is the the heartbeat of our people, the drums, the language. All of these things is the heart and soul of our people and bring it back. And so it, he did. And, and that's the reason why he was he was given the, the term the Merry Monarch because he was happy and 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 he wanted all of these uh things to return back to Hawaii. When it comes back in the 1920s and 30s, now Honolulu and Oahu, that which is the main hub, had taken on steamships. It's the Matsonian time period. So it's the time where um the US Navy's coming. And so now Hula started to turn into entertainment. So now it's It's the girls lining up on the dock, dancing for the military that's coming. And it's more entertainment. And it, it turned into, I feel like crazy dancing. Yeah. <laughs> dancing without a, a, a religion attached to it. It just became entertainment. And it became cellophane skirts and a lot of flower lays and long fabric that made trains into these ruffle kind of dresses. And Hollywood gets involved and Hollywood turns it into a whole nother show. And now we're fighting to bring it all back to the old style. I think we see the need for it to penetrate our people and become our heartbeat again. When we're talking about reclaiming, can you tell me about the move to reclaim hula as something for Hawaiians as opposed to tourists? So I favor the old style of hula. And because in that hula, it will tell you the names of the winds and the rains that we call them. It will tell you the weather patterns and the way the clouds move. It will tell you the names of every single day and the month and what the moon looks like and what kind of things happen during those phases. It will tell you about the landscape and all the different names of them and how much layers of earth there is, when eruptions happen, when the ocean breaks, when, you know, that's, it's an encyclopedia. 
cooler is an encyclopedia and you dance them. And if you learn to do them correctly, you become a scientist and you become a, an expert and a doctor in all these things. So I favor the old one because the hula kahiko or that ancient style, because all of that's associated with it. The hula awana today, it's songs that people write about um, infatuation and about um adultery. It's about uh, beautiful flowers and how you feel when you're sitting on the mountain or what you have seen and how beautiful it is. And it's about something personal that that somebody wrote about loving someone or being present at that time and what they felt like and be able to, um, it's somebody's memories that they're able to tell the story through these lyrics. And then we're able to dance about somebody's memories. So very different from the old to the new. And so I favor the old style because that's the one that makes the world go round. What do your hula students want to get out of your classes? Are they just wanting to learn the dance or is it something bigger about connecting to their culture? So my halal is the old school dance, traditional dance school, I guess, (laughs) old school. And so whenever I open up new classes, most of my students, I would say 95% of the students that come, they come because they know that they're going to learn something very ancient. They're going to learn old hula. They're going to learn culture and they're going to learn power and they're going to learn all these things and how to connect to their genealogy, how to learn a ancient practice. And so because I have that reputation, that's who I attract, those kind of uh, students. So I rarely ever get students that come and say, are we dancing at the hotel? Yeah. You know, and they're so they initially, if they, they're coming to hula for me, for my halal, they'll know already that, oh, we better be prepared because Kuma's going to make us go to the mountains and chant up in a mountain. We're going to have to recite long genealogies. We're going to have to know all the winds and the rains and we're going to have to know all the flowers and all the plants. And, and so my students initially, when they come, they, they're expecting that. All of my students are Hawaiian because mm-hmm. it's almost too much for non-natives. <laughs> if they come and they, they're like, I, this is, I can't do this. This is too much things for me. So, yeah. <laughs> if you had to sum it up, how would you describe the changes to hula that you've witnessed in your lifetime? I've seen people be afraid of our culture. I think when our culture started coming back in the 70s and we had this big renaissance and and our, our canoes, we, we had hokuleao that we created and it started voyaging and people realized we can do this. We can be Hawaiian. Hula came back. Everything started coming back. Our language full force. And they said we could do this. But I think it also kind of scared our people. I think it, it led people to um, be in shock because they were so brainwashed um, to not do these things that it kind of shook them up. And so with hula, I think we played it safe for so long. So hula comes back in and a lot of people just kind of surfaced it. They just touched the surface because they didn't want to dig too deep because it was too strong and too powerful. And so what I've seen from when I was young to what I see currently is now we're diving in the deep end of the pool, which is fabulous to me. They're it's diving as deep as they can. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Deep as can and find out things at the core of what it means and why we're doing it and perpetuate it. This is so special. I I think I want to cry. Mahalo. Hula has been a, a, a way that I've traveled all over teaching people, but I've always told all the cultures around the world that I've taught to learn their own dance, 
learn the dance of their people because um, hula is specific to Hawaii and to Polynesians in the Pacific. But, you know, in, in Indonesia, in Mexico, in all these places that their dance, if they find the connection and the spirituality in their dance, it'll be just as powerful as hula is. And if I have to lend them my hula until they can find it, then I'm willing to do that. And so if you have to borrow our hula till you can find your own dance and, and relearn your own drums and find your own beat, then so be it. But one day, please revive your dance because that's what it means to us. It means the world to us that we have to have this struggle to and almost lose hula to realize how much we're willing to die for it. And so um, I, I, my hopes is that the whole world dances and they dance not just for any old reason other than for spirituality and for bliss and for them to tell their story and for them to connect to their ancestors. The Merry Monarch Festival is a week-long cultural celebration that takes place every year in Hilo, Hawaii. For over 60 years, huge crowds have swarmed to attend the arts fair and watch the iconic hula competition. Each year, halau or hula schools compete just to be part of it. Luana Kawelu is the president of the Merry Monarch Festival, a job passed down to her from her mother, who was foundational in forming the festival to what it is today. The Marimana Festival started after Hilo, Hawaii was hit by a tsunami in 1960 because it wiped out a lot of our downtown Hilo. The county was looking for some kind of economic development to build up the economy again on this island. And so in 1963, Helene Hale was the chairman of the County of Hawaii. And in her executive office, they had two people on her staff sent both of them to Bowie to observe a festival in Lahaina. That was the Lahaina Whaling Spree. And she charged them with the task of developing something to bring back to Hilo. That's amazing. And that was such a long time ago and still going. So I understand that in 1968, your mother became involved. That's the reason why she came involved, because nobody wanted to be the chair, and she stepped forward to volunteer. How was she involved in that? How did she help revive the festival at the time? She went to Oahu to meet with the hula masters of the time, because she wanted to set new goals, yeah, and refocus the idea of what the festival would be about. And then the 8th Annual Merrimonic Festival celebrated the first hula competition in the state of Hawaii. And at the time, it included a Miss Aloha Hula, a Wahine group. The festival didn't really take off and wasn't that popular at the time. We struggled to make it work. But in 1976, my mother added the Kane division, the men, and that's when the popularity really took off, and uh, we were able to sell many, many tickets 
before that, we were struggling to sell tickets. Yeah. At the time, men's hula would have been just coming back into light. Is that right? Well, men were the first hula dancers yeah. in Hawaii. But, you know, she started with a women's competition. And we were doing okay, but we weren't filling up the stadium. And we had to push the sale of tickets until 1976 when she added the Kane division. And then it really went full bloom. It was so popular. Yeah, it sounds so amazing. Can you tell me or can you walk me through what happens during the festival? We have the festival start on Easter Sunday every year. And I wanted to know why they chose that date. And according to her at Uncle George, it was because in the spring, there was not too many tourists coming to the island. So to promote a festival which brought tourists, that's why they chose that month. And it's been Easter Sunday every year. First, we have a Miss Aloha Hula, and that's done on the Thursday. Twelve contestants do the ancient dances the first half and the modern hula dances the second half. On Friday night, all the groups, the Ichalau, participates in the kahiko, the ancient dances. So everybody has to do an ancient dance. At first, when my mom first started this uh, festival, she used to have what we call a contest chant. And we would select the chant from a hula master who would give us an ancient chant. So let's say we have 20 halal. They all do the same dance. And you would see the creativity in how they interpreted the melee, the dance. We stopped that when TV became involved. Now, I asked my mom why she allowed TV. And she said there were many kupuna, the old folks, and people who lived in Luna Lilo housing, those that's the housing for the all the old Hawaiian people, that she felt they would enjoy watching hula. And so she had the TV to do a live broadcast. During the week, we have hula shows at the hotels. And then we have a craft fair that features Hawaiian arts and crafts. It is very, very popular. Some people fly over from the other islands just to go to the craft fair. Wow. How has the festival changed for you since it started 60 years ago? Well, I try to keep it the same because this year was our 63rd year. And if it worked for that many years, why am I going to be a fool to change it? Exactly. <laughs> why fix something that's not broken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I try to follow the mission of what my mom wanted. You know, this is not about making money or selling our culture. It's to share with people around the world. And so people think I'm crazy. They come up to see me and point their finger at me and tell me what a terrible businesswoman I am. But I know we can make money if I raise the price of tickets. But what about the family? 
the yeah. parents, the uncles, the grandparents who want to come. Yeah. Prices of everything are going up, hotels, cars, airfare. If I raise the price of tickets, then they wouldn't be able to come. So I try to keep it as low as possible. Why is it so important for you to continue hosting this festival every year? Because I think to perpetuate the tradition of hula is so important. But I often question my sanity. Why am I keeping on doing this? It is so hard to put it on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but it's my mom's legacy, and I think it is truly important that we keep this hula tradition going. To see how people like Luana and Micah have carried on the hula legacy of their elders is such a great inspiration. When you think about the dance surviving in secret for so many years to becoming something that young Hawaiians can now perform freely and celebrate, it's an amazing turnaround. I can't wait till the next time I get to see this celebration and survival of Hawaiian culture with my own eyes. This is Culture Compass on ABC Radio Australia. Culture Compass is hosted by me, Sayuli Salamasina von Reiki. Our ABC Radio Australia executive producer is Falangafulu Inga Stunsner. From Deadset Studios, our producer is Lucy McAfee. Supervising producer is Grace Pashley. And our executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Audio editing and sound design by Nick McCorriston. This episode was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Jagra and Durrumbal people. We pay respects to their elders, past and present. <laughs>